So it's Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 36, and it's on page 981. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he told the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Tim, thank you so much for reading that passage from Matthew chapter 14 for us. Um, In case you're wondering who I am, my name's David Doherty. I'm a member of the staff team here at Bishop Hannington Church. And for the next few minutes, well, maybe more than a few, um, we're going to be thinking about that passage that uh, Tim read for us this morning from uh, Matthew's Gospel chapter 14. Um, If you were here last week, you will know that we have just started a new series of sermons uh, looking at the second half of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, Peter began it by looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 14, which of course includes the the rather gloomy and disturbing story of the death of, of John the Baptist. But this morning, we're in much more cheerful territory. We're actually thinking about perhaps one of the best known of all the miracles that Jesus performed, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that's followed again by another dramatic miracle, uh, the story of Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Two remarkable stories. 
two stories which, um, which say quite extraordinary things about Jesus. Uh, and then right at the end, if you remember, uh, the passage is rounded off by a very, very brief incident where Jesus uh, visits an area called Gennesaret, a place, on, again, on, on the Sea of Galilee. Now, as Peter reminded us last Sunday, in thinking about the feeding of the 5,000 and thinking about Peter and Jesus both walking on the water, we're actually thinking about two quite extraordinary and remarkable miracles. And people have tended to react to these stories in all sorts of different ways. Some, for instance, have tried to explain away the miraculous element. Although, if truth be told, explaining away somebody walking on the Sea of, the sea of Galilee is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and the reality is that you either accept these stories as they are, or, or you don't. Other people have sought to draw out the symbolism that lies behind some of the things that Jesus did. For example, some people have drawn a parallel, a very real parallel, that can be made uh, between Jesus feeding these 5,000 plus people and some of the stories from the Old Testament. Um, if you think way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, you may remember the story of the Exodus. You may remember the story of how Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they found themselves in a desert area. And for a long period of time, God provided the people of Israel with bread literally from heaven, uh, a bread called manna. And God continued to provide that for all the time that the people of Israel were in the desert until they got to the promised land and were able to start cultivating crops for themselves once more. And people who witnessed that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, would have made the connection. They would make the connection that in doing this, Jesus was doing the sort of things that God had done for his people in the past. And they'd have said, this is in tune with what God has done in the past. What does this say to us about Jesus? But this morning, I want to focus on two things that this passage tells us about Jesus. Aspects of his character, his very nature, two things that make him who he is. And the first thing that these stories tell us is that Jesus is compassionate. If nothing else hits you about Jesus as you read this passage, it's got to be this. Jesus cared about people. He cared about them far more than his own plans and his own preferences. Right at the start of the reading that Tim read for us, we're told that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. Jesus had been based on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Sorry, this isn't going to be a geography lesson, promise. Um, but Capernaum, where Jesus was based, was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it right at the top on the map. And... Um, you know, the verse before uh, tells us that Jesus had deliberately decided to leave Capernaum, which was quite a busy populated area, and head across to somewhere quieter on the opposite side of the lake. And Luke's gospel tells us that he went to an area called Bethsaida. You can see the arrow roughly showing the journey that Jesus and the disciples made by boat. Why did he do this? Well, we're told why he did it. He did it because he'd heard about some of the things that Herod was saying about him. Um, right at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we read that Herod had decided that Jesus must be John the Baptist, 
whom Herod had executed, who'd come back to life. And people told Jesus that Herod was putting this particular story about. And that's obviously the thing which inspired Jesus to feel that it was time to move away from a busy area and head for somewhere quieter. Why did Jesus want to get away? Well, it wasn't because he was afraid of Herod. Herod was obviously afraid of Jesus. Um, Was it because Jesus wanted time to think and pray? Well, possibly. Was it because he and the disciples need rest? One of the other Gospels tells us that was true. But, you know, perhaps one of the other reasons why Jesus felt it was time just to sort of draw back a little bit. Because as you read through the Gospels, one of the things you notice is that whenever Jesus saw people getting the wrong ideas about him, he always dampened it down. He always reacted when people were getting the wrong notion of who he was, who he was, uh, and what he was about. And here was the case where Herod was putting it about that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now that obviously wasn't true. And so Jesus just stands back a little while, heads for somewhere quiet, draws back from the limelight just for a moment. The trouble was that it didn't work. People saw him and his disciples leave, saw the direction they were heading, and realized that they could walk around the north end of the lake to wherever Jesus was heading and and catch up with him there. And that's what happened. Jesus and the disciples returned to the shore of Bethsaida, and what's the first thing they see? A whole horde of people who walked around the top of the lake. Now, if you were in that situation, what would you have done? Okay, guys. Back on the boat, we're off. Yes? Come on. Yes. But it's not what Jesus does. Jesus had compassion on them and healed all who was ill. Mark's Gospel also includes this story and he adds an extra detail. He tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Lost and confused. Needing more than healing, Mark tells us that as well as healing people, he taught them many things. And and that's what Jesus is like. He cares for people and their needs. He responds to them. And this is an idea that you see over and over and over again as you read through this reading that Tim read for us. Later on, we see Jesus, for instance, responding again to the needs of people. They're hungry, a long way from home. Uh, The disciples see a problem, but no solution. Jesus sees a need, and just as before, he responds to that need by meeting it. Later on, when night has come and the crowds have dispersed, the disciples are making heavy weather of a boat trip. You'll remember that after the 5,000 plus had been fed, Jesus told the disciples to get back in the boat and head across to the other side of the lake. But it's not a good night for a boat trip. Uh, The wind is blowing in the wrong direction. They're having to row against the wind and the waves, and it's not a fun experience at all. And does Jesus leave them to it? No, he goes out to them, walking on the water as we've seen. And finally, right at the end of the chapter, 
when Jesus and his disciples arrive at this area called Gennesaret, again on the western side of the lake, a little to the south of Capernaum, um, we see again Jesus responding to the needs of people. Second half of verse 35 tells us that people brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. And throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the picture that we have of Jesus. He's not harsh. He's not distant. He's not taken up with his own self-importance. No, he's the complete opposite of all that. He's taken up with the needs of others. Jesus is compassionate. You know, one of the criticisms that you sometimes hear and perhaps unfairly leveled against political leaders is that they, they don't get it. You know, they don't understand the problems that ordinary people face, and if they do, they're not terribly bothered about it. Now, as I say, I think that is perhaps a little unfair. But certainly one of the things that this passage underlines for us is that Jesus does get it. He does understand me and you. He does care about me and you. And he's willing to do something about it. Of course, perhaps one of the reasons why politicians are sometimes accused of not getting it is not that they don't understand the problem, not that they don't feel the problem, but the truth is that, frankly, they haven't the foggiest idea what to do about it. You know, And I guess that's an experience that we often have as well. It's not that we're unfeeling or uncaring, but we struggle to know how we can respond in a way that's effective and a way that's helpful. And this brings us to the second thing that we learn about Jesus uh, from these two incidents, these three incidents in his life. The second thing we learn is not only is Jesus compassionate, but Jesus is also in control. Think back to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 again just for a moment. The disciples weren't uncaring people. They could see that there was a problem. They had an enormous crowd of people who'd left their towns and villages in a hurry. They'd dropped everything to follow Jesus round the top of the lake in order to catch up with him. They hadn't had time to pick up food or anything like that before they started. And now they found themselves in a remote area. It was getting late and something had to be done. It wasn't that they couldn't be bothered. They just didn't know what to do about it. Their best idea was send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and see what food they can find for themselves there. And as for Jesus' suggestion, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, frankly, that was ridiculous. Or was it? Hold that thought because we'll be coming back to it. But for the time being, the idea of feeding that many people with hardly any resources at all, uh, five loaves. Now, these wouldn't be the loaves you get from Tesco. These were much smaller barley loaves uh, and two small fish. The idea of feeding that many people with such meager resources was, was beyond the comprehension of the disciples. But not beyond that of Jesus. You remember the rest of the story as it was read to us. Jesus takes the loaves, he takes the fishes, he gives thanks to God, breaks the loaves, and starts sharing the food with the crowd. And he keeps on sharing until everyone has had enough to eat. Jesus is not just compassionate. 
he's in control of the situation. The situation is not in control of Jesus. And it's not just a control of a bad situation. What Jesus is demonstrating is that he has control over the natural order. He has control over the laws of creation. He's bending and shaping the normal rules of creation, the way the world works, to suit his plan and his purpose. And as we've seen, these acts weren't showing off. These acts were motivated by compassion. Jesus' miracles were never about impressing the onlookers. They always stemmed from meeting the real needs of human beings. You see exactly the same thing in the second incident in the reading. People can't walk on water. Some people can't even swim in the stuff. But Jesus does. He's in control of the way in which the world works. The world isn't his master. He is the master of the world. Indeed, both these stories are saying something very profound and significant about Jesus, about his nature, about who he is. And in this second story, Matthew underlines this point by including a detail that isn't found in either of the other two gospel accounts of this story. Uh, The story of Peter also walking on the water as well. It's just before dawn. The disciples have had a difficult night in the boat. They are tired uh, and they see this, this form walking towards them across the water. Naturally, their first reaction is one of shock, but they're reassured by Jesus so much so that Peter, one of the disciples, asks Jesus if, if he can join them in the water too. At the sense of Peter's request in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, let me come to you in the water. It doesn't always translate terribly well into English. You know, it can give the wrong impression. It's not so much that Peter was saying, well, if it's you, prove it. Rather, what Peter was saying to Jesus was, well, if it's you, can I? He wasn't asking for proof. He was asking for permission. And Jesus gives them that permission. He says, come. And Peter starts heading out across the water. What's being said here? Jesus is not just in control of the world as it affects him. He's also in control of the world as it affects other people, whether enabling Peter to walk on the surface of the sea or healing people who were sick. But more than that, as we'll see later, Jesus was even in control of Peter's wavering faith. Peter steps out onto the water and for a while things are going splendidly. But then Peter realizes where he is, starts looking around, sees the wind. Well, he probably hears the wind. He certainly sees the waves and he, well, let's put it kindly, he becomes distracted. He becomes worried. He becomes concerned. He loses his focus and he starts to sink. And Jesus is still in control of the situation because when Peter calls to Jesus, Jesus reaches out and lifts him up again. What do you make of all this? It's interesting to see what the people in the boat made of it, Jesus' disciples. In verse 33 we read, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Both their actions, they worshipped him, and their words leave us in no doubt what they make of it. 
Jesus was Lord. Jesus was God. The actions demonstrated that they were in the presence of the creator of the world, the one who was the master of creation. We live in a world where very often things seem out of control. Ruth and I were watching a 30-minute documentary last night about the fall of Aleppo. It was not an easy watch. And you look at that and you say, what's going on nearer to home? We know that elections don't always work out the way people think they're going to work out. We live in a world where life doesn't often work out the way we would wish it to. And there seems to be nobody in control. The good guys don't always win. One of the things that Matthew's Gospel, and this part in particular, teaches us, tells us, assures us of, is that that is not true. Someone is in control, and he does care. And perhaps the place where this most fully comes together is something that we remember every Easter. It comes together in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. On the face of things, that is an extraordinary thing to say. After all, death is the ultimate evidence that we're not in control. We may, be, we may be able to cheat life, but we are certainly not able to cheat death. And on the face of things, it would have seemed that Jesus had finally lost control of the situation. Time had caught up with him. He'd been arrested by the authorities, he'd been condemned to death, and he'd been executed. And yet the message of the New Testament is this, that appearances are deceptive. Jesus was always in control. Everything that happened over that first Easter was not driven by misfortune or bad luck, but by Jesus' compassion for all humanity. Speaking of the death of Christ, Peter, speaking after Jesus' resurrection, said these words, This man was handed over to you, that's the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, not because you thought it was a good idea, but by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus was always in control of that situation. It wasn't an accident or a miscalculation. It was part of God's plan. Or in John's Gospel, in chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That death of Jesus was voluntary. It was a deliberate choice. Jesus was in control. Jesus voluntarily gave up his love, compassionately for each one of us. Jesus died because, frankly, nothing else would do. There was nothing else that would overcome the gulf that lies between us and God that is created by our sin and our wrongdoing. His death was motivated by compassion. Compassion for each one of us. Motivated by God's wish to provide a means of escape from the consequences of humanity's collective and our personal rejection of him. And Jesus' resurrection shows that he was always in control. It shows that death wasn't ultimately his master. Again, in John's Gospel, in a very, very well-known verse, it's put this way. Chapter 3 and verse 16, if you need the reference. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
not an accident. A demonstration of his compassion and his control and available to everyone through faith, through belief in the Lord Jesus. We access this through faith, but you know, sometimes it's very easy to say, well, you know, all you need to do is believe and forget that very often a belief, a faith is not easy. And one of the things that comes out of these incidents in Matthew's Gospel is that, in truth, faith can sometimes be difficult. Do you remember when I asked you to hold that thought about the disciples' reaction to Jesus' suggestion that they should feed the crowd themselves? Was it a ridiculous idea? You see, you might have thought that the disciples living around Jesus For them, faith would have come relatively easily. Not only had they heard Jesus' teaching and witnessed Jesus' miracles, they had actually experienced doing that sort of thing for themselves. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 10, we read of how Jesus called the twelve disciples and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. Jesus had given them that authority, given them that ability, given them that power, and we read that they went off and did it, and they came back rejoicing and astonishing about the remarkable things that God had done uh, through them. And yet, confronted by the need to feed over 5,000 people, their faith seems to have completely departed them. You know, faith which, you know, if it was going to be easy for anyone, it was going to be easy for them. And why was it that they found it so difficult? Um, Had they forgotten? In the heat of the crisis, had they become distracted? Was it that they failed to relate what they'd been able to do before to the situation that faced them now? I don't know. But whatever the reason... In that particular situation, the disciples found exercising faith difficult. And what about Peter? He had enough faith to get out of the boat. But as we saw earlier, it was a faith that was distracted and overwhelmed. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Now that may have been then. But the truth is that this is often the reality that we face as well. You know, it's easy to have faith when things are going well. And sometimes things are going well. You know, not a cloud in the sky, no problems, no issues, no distractions, no wind, no wave, you know. And at times like that, it is easy to have faith. But what about when things are difficult? What about when bad things are happening around us? When we've had a bitter experience? It's very easy not to have faith. It's very easy to see the wind, to see the waves, to see all the things that are piled up against us and to become preoccupied them uh, for faith to be overcome by fear, for our faith to become flaky, and for us to start thinking. And what this chapter tells us above everything is that Jesus has control over flaky faith. Jesus is in control of weak faith. Jesus is in control of struggling faith, faltering faith, 
But when our faith is struggling or weak or faltering and we're finding it difficult, like Peter, we need to tell Jesus that we need him to reach out to us and to help us. Jesus is there. Jesus does care. Jesus is in control. But like Peter, we have to ask him. We have to say to Jesus, I'm sinking. I'm struggling. My faith is, yes, very flaky at the moment. Will you reach out and lift me up? Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that thank you that your son does care for us. Thank you that your son cared so much for us that he came to die for us, enabling us to be reconciled to you. And Heavenly Father, sometimes we find it difficult to put our faith in what Jesus has done. Heavenly Father, when that's the way we feel, help us to reach out to you. Amen.